You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought them there, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of Yahweh had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for thirty thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line, and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on a seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. At about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. 
And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. A long, long time ago, I can still remember how that music used to make me smile. And I knew if I had my chance that I could make those people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. But February made me shiver with every paper I'd deliver. Bad news on the doorstep I couldn't take one more step I can't remember if I cried When I read about his widowed bride But something touched me deep inside The day the music died Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet, also known as Garrett, also known as Honey by my wife, sweetie, dear. <laughs> usually, usually those are how she refers to me. Also, she calls me G when texting, uh, usually when texting about me. Also known as Dad, Father to my sons, but you can just call me Garrett. This is Tuesday, September 26th, 2023, and episode 722 of this podcast, and that was a reading of 1 Samuel chapter 4, and it's a sad chapter in Israel's history. You have, by the way, a reminder that Eli, if you didn't know, was a judge. He was a judge over Israel for 40 years, and here he is, 98, and that is to say he started judging Israel at about the age of 58. And so who knows exactly how old his sons are, but odds are at least pretty decent that his sons are middle-aged, at least. That's probable. And his sons have died, and now he has died. And it would appear, it seems as though his daughter-in-law also, when she gets the news that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines, when she gets the news that her husband has died, and her father-in-law has died. She goes into labor. She was pregnant. She goes into labor, and it would appear that she also dies. So this is just a really heavy passage. This is tragic. And oh, by the way, there are 30,000 men of Israel who die. Their names are not mentioned. And all you know is that 30,000 is a round number. But every one of those 30,000 had family. And the families surely got news that their sons were not coming home. Their sons had died in battle with the Philistines. But then what's curious is there's a great deal of mourning about the loss of the Ark of the Covenant. There's a kind of shock. There's a shock to the system because this has not happened. This doesn't happen. The Ark of the Covenant being captured by the Philistines is a blindside. It's like being T-boned by a Mack truck in an intersection because you ran the red light. Not because the Mack truck ran the red light, but because Israel ran the red light and was in the habit of running the red light. Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were in the habit of running the red light, which is to say 
They weren't observing God's commands. They weren't revering God. They weren't fearing God. Eli seems as though he's innocent because what's he doing, right? He's not doing anything bad, but there's more to it. His sons are doing bad things, and Eli, as their father and as priest and as judge over Israel for 40 years, it's what Eli is not doing, and it's what he's not saying. It's that he's not confronting the bad behavior of his own sons. And fast forward with me for a moment to when Paul the Apostle in the New Testament writes qualifications for overseers and deacons, very high up on the list of qualifications is that a man must manage his household well. A man must manage his household well. If he doesn't manage his household well, well, then he's not going to do a good job with the church either. And so also, you can reasonably suppose that Eli is not doing a good job as judge. He's not doing a good job as priest when he's not managing his own sons well. And they also are put in these positions of priest. And then there's this battle where they are the ones called out to take the Ark of the Covenant to the army of Israel as Israel is going to fight again with the Philistines. These men are probably middle-aged. They're probably gray-haired men, Hophni and Phinehas, and they have a long-sorted career behind them. And do they have a fear that this is going to go badly? Do they feel totally out of their depth? If they do, it's not said And if they do, they don't do anything about it because now it's just what it is. And now they're committed. And maybe the kinds of things that are said today about the psychological utility of having Old Testament literature for the Jewish people by historians like Will Durant, for instance, the kinds of things that are said about the utility of having a Christian New Testament to keep up with the philosophy of the Greeks for instance, to have a identity, to have a backstory for what would come later with the Roman Catholic Church, for Catholic Europe, for Christian and Christianized Europe. Maybe the same kinds of people who psychologize and they see these things as useful because they're projecting. They're projecting the way that they handle morality and the worship of God, how they relate to God. They project that onto everybody who came before them and they think, Everybody was this way, while some people were this way, where they would employ religious garb and religious trappings and religious ceremonies, religious language to get a benefit. Machiavelli would be proud of Hophni and Phinehas right up until the moment where they die. They die because this game they're playing is not a game that they're playing only against other people, their other fellow Israelites. It's a game that they're playing against God, and God is not going to lose that game. He may let them think that they're winning for a time, and then he will deal justice, and he does deal justice. And insofar as all Israel has known that Hophni and Phinehas were these bad guys who would harass and bully people who came in obedience to Shiloh to bring a sacrifice, Hophni and Phinehas were sleeping with women right outside the tent of meeting. Insofar as all Israel knew this, it was common knowledge. People were coming up to Eli all the time, telling him, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. The most he does is to say, what is this thing you're doing? This thing you're doing is not good. And when they ignore him, when they just blow him off and they 
carry on and they don't listen to him, what does he do? Shouldn't something be done to put a stop to their abusive practices, their corrupt practices? He doesn't, right? He doesn't put a stop to it. And all Israel sees that Eli does not put a stop to it. And at a certain point, and we know this, right? We know this from our own context. At a certain point, the people begin to shrug and they say, this is just what it is. This is just how it is. This is the way the world works. This is the way it's always been, maybe. And they start to revise history. And they start to say that, you know what? It was all just cleverly devised myths to give us a sense of ourselves. And yes, the Ark of the Covenant being brought forward will be useful to inspire the fighting spirit of the men who are superstitious and the men who believe in that sort of a thing. But we don't believe in that sort of a thing. Remember, the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. It says at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 3. And oh, by the way, Samuel, this little boy who's ministering before Yahweh all day, every day in the temple, this boy Samuel doesn't know Yahweh, doesn't know the voice of Yahweh. And yet Yahweh calls to him in the night, Samuel, Samuel. God himself has to introduce himself to Samuel because even working in the temple on a daily basis, ministering before Yahweh on a daily basis, Samuel doesn't know Yahweh, which makes it reasonable to suppose that the people of Israel They may go through the motions. This may be traditional. This may be somewhat normative. They talk about God. They have an appearance of godliness. They go through the rituals, but they don't know God. God allowing the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines, allowing 30,000 Israelites to be killed on the battlefield is to the end of getting their attention and getting the attention of the nations. This is to put everybody on notice and us also and all the generations in between to put all of us on notice that you don't get some magic talisman, some magic object that you go into battle with, that you just are going to prosper indefinitely economically and diplomatically and socially and militarily if you have it, if you wave it around and say the magic words. You're not going to get God to just perpetually do your bidding and look over your wickedness, your rebelliousness, your stiff-neckedness. That's the point. And this is shocking. This is shocking, and it is the cause of a great deal of grief. In fact, there's so much grief on Eli's part at hearing that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured that he falls off of his stool and breaks his neck and he dies. There's so much shock. There's so much heartbreak at this, at the sudden realization that Everything they know about themselves and who they are has been wrong. That the wife of Phineas, when she hears that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, she goes into labor and it would appear she dies as a result of labor, labor and delivery. She was all worked up. She was that upset about it. Eli was that upset about it. There's a lot of upset, and it's appropriate for there to be a lot of upset. Because to these Israelites, the loss of the Ark of the Covenant is the loss of the blessing of God. It's the loss of the protection of God. It's the loss of the presence of God, which is to say, this symbolically is the rejection of God of this people who are wayward. Now, that said, that said, this is not going to be the end of God dwelling with his people. 
This is not the end of Israel being God's chosen people. Also, there's a kind of preview for a greater judgment that Israel will come under later. And there's some hope in the word of Samuel coming to all Israel. Because in chapter 3, it says that all Israel knew that Samuel was a prophet. And so there's a curious, very subtle but sure shift that's happening here where the Ark of the Covenant is lost, but God's presence, God's leading and guiding is going to come through Samuel. And oh, by the way, it was supposed to be the case that the judges and the priests would speak faithfully what God told them to say. That was supposed to be the case. It wasn't supposed to be the case that you put on these special clothes, these funny-looking clothes. You go to this special place. You use these special instruments with this special furniture. You offer up sacrifices, and you do it in such and such a way, and you're good. It was supposed to be the case all along that this people would be obedient, and their obedience would come from a place of faith in God, love for God, the fear of God. When you keep on doing the things, but the love for God, the faith in God, the fear of God is no longer there, you shouldn't be surprised if the presence of the Lord is not there, the blessings of the Lord are not there, the guidance and the protection and the provision of God is not there. You shouldn't be surprised. You can't just say the magic words. You can't just, in our day, I mean, this would be more of our context, you can't just quote scripture even Satan quotes scripture. It's not enough to believe that there is a God. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's not enough to go to church. Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, they were in the equivalent of church every day. You can do all of that and not know God. And at a certain point, if you keep on like that, if there's not an intervention and God doesn't make himself known, in due time, God will say, I don't know you either. I don't recognize you. I'm not going to give you any special favor or blessing. I'm going to hand you over to whoever the strongest is. And this is also curious. What's interesting about the Philistines, what's said about their dialogue internally is that initially they are very afraid. So what's interesting is they're seemingly more sobered about the presence of the Ark of the Covenant in this battle than the Israelites who have had the Ark of the Covenant in Israel for 40 years of Eli being a judge in Israel. They've had the Ark of the Covenant in their midst all this time, and the Philistines are more afraid than the Israelites have demonstrated that they are afraid. And yet, what do they say? They say some funny things which indicate that they don't really know this God either. They know kind of, sort of, it's blurry, it's a little fuzzy, the history. They say gods, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Okay, well, it's not gods. There's one God, Yahweh. But then this just goes to show how bad the representation is by Israel, that they're not representing well. When asked, if asked, they don't really give a clear picture of their own history. Maybe they don't know it either. But the Philistines, at least, don't know that this is Yahweh God. They just know a God has come into the camp. The gods. So is it a God? Is it the gods? They're not entirely clear on that. It's a little fuzzy. But then they say in verse 9, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, 
as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So they do remember that the Hebrews have been their slaves. They do remember that. They know that much. That's not lost on them. They also recognize that being courageous and being men is something. That might make the difference here. We're going to fight. And if you are courageous and if you are men, O Philistines, we'll win. Be men and fight. Now, what's curious about that in our context is there's a lot of controversy surrounding whether men should be men or whether women should be men, whether men should be women. There's a lot of controversy over whether this is such a good idea. There's a lot of controversy about toxic masculinity. And by that, we would mean traditional masculinity. Yes, men can be sinful and wicked and they can use their powers for evil instead of for good. That doesn't mean that masculinity is toxic. This is an effort at emasculating us, really, to make us weak so that weak men will find that their would-be victims are weaker still and nobody will stop them and they can implement communism. They can prey on whoever they want to prey on. They can do evil things. If they convince the men to not be men in our culture, then they can have their way. They can do every evil thing they want to do. They want to talk us basically into all being more like Eli, unfortunately. Don't fall for it. But it says in verse 10, the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. When men show up, when they fight, even when they're bad men, when they're courageous, when they're bold, when they're aggressive, when they take decisive action, particularly against those who are not being bold or courageous or strong or decisive, who are being double-minded, when single-minded men fight double-minded men, the single-minded men typically win. It's typically how it goes. Don't be double-minded. It makes you extremely weak and vulnerable. And in hindsight, if you're not one of the 30,000 who gets cut down on the battlefield, you'll regret that you were not more clear in what you believed, who you believed in, and knowing him. If God is not with this people Israel, they're not strong enough to fight the Philistines. And that's something at a certain point they forget or they misattribute. They say, oh, we're strong because we have these trappings, right? It's something special about us, something special about our judges. No, it's something special about God. And what was special about you as a people and a nation is that Yahweh was your God and you were his people and you forgot that. And that's why God has handed you over to your enemies. And that's why he's even handed over the Ark of the Covenant to your enemies. This is pretty intense stuff. This is pretty fierce, really. Pretty jarring. This is a heavy, heavy passage. Fortunately, it's not the end. There is more. But wait, there is more. So you won't want to miss our next episode where we talk about 1 Samuel chapter 5. For now, though, let's come to the present. And let's consider that we are not Israel. We are not the Israelites. We do not have any major enemies. Many people do not like the United States, but we don't have any among our major enemies, our major rivals in the world who are Philistines per se. But insofar as Israel is a type and the Philistines are a type, let's suppose for the sake of our next segment that America is a type of Israel and that some of our enemies 
domestically and abroad, are types of Philistines, or of the same type as the Philistines. Christine Rosen published a piece over at Acton.org, July 24th, 2023, titled, The Death of Conservatism is Greatly Exaggerated. File this one under Religion and Liberty, Volume 33, Number 3. The feature image, by the way, is of a reimagining of an 1880s illustration of the transformation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's very clever. You can see here Dr. Jekyll is wearing a trucker cap, says Reagan Bush 84, and he's holding a book in his hands, The Best of Burke. (laughs) So here we have a Burkean conservative, a Reagan conservative, but Christine Rosen writes, These days, many on the right are itching for revolution, eager to dispense what they believe is a hidebound conservatism that promoted restraint and narrow ideals at the cost of broader cultural and political victories. These rebels have embraced new philosophies ranging from integralism, Trumpism, nationalist conservatism, and even a devotion to the autocratic light populism of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who told attendees at last year's Conservative Political Action Conference to, quote, take back the institutions in Washington and in Brussels, and, quote, play by your own rules, end quote. Depending on your political proclivities, these developments are either invigorating or like watching a tetchy Mr. Hyde emerging from the stable temperament of Dr. Jekyll. The concerns of these would-be disruptors include conservatism's perceived failure to halt the progressive left's long march through cultural and educational institutions, the increasing power of the administrative state, the rise of woke corporations, the continued insistence of some conservatives on America's unique responsibilities in world affairs, and the failure of the traditional free market capitalist message to confront present economic realities. Many books, essays, conferences, and organizations have sprung up to attempt to craft an agenda for these often competing new right impulses. It is in this context that John Asconis, writing in Compact Magazine, purports to tell us why conservatism failed. One would hope that an obituary for conservatism would be more thorough than what Esconis offers. So to be charitable, let's consider his essay a provocation rather than the official death knell for conservatism. So let's just pause for a moment. Let's pause to unpack and sum up. Basically, Christine Rosen is saying, you have the new right, the new right, which does not respect and is not appreciative of old style, more establishment type, probably actually generationally older conservatives by and large, but probably also those who are more affluent, those who are seeming to be doing better financially and socially, those who have suffered less and are conservatives and they have the reins of power in the Republican Party in particular, but then also in conservative institutions that have been around longer, they are getting the blame from the new right. The more Trumpian Republicans, who very often are punchier, like Trump is punchy, they are punchy, and they don't like this mismanners approach that the more establishment types insist on. That is a recipe for more and more failure and 
as they see it. That's how we got to where we're at right now, where the progressives have seized the levers of power and they're backing us ever tighter into a corner that if we don't fight, we're never going to get out of. So you have a gauntlet thrown down saying that conservatism has failed. What are you guys conserving? What have you conserved? Conservatism is dead. But then after a fashion, you may have a lot of people saying conservatism is dead. Long live the conservatism. Let's find out. We'll continue reading Christine Rosen's article here. Nothing new here. Conservatism's obituary has been written many times before, of course, but Esconis claims to bring a new insight and a new indictment of conservatism's devotion to tradition. Quote, the conservative defense of tradition has failed, not because the right lost the battle of ideas, but because technological change has dissolved the contexts in which traditions once thrived. Citing Marx, Esconis claims that a technological society can have no traditions. Elaborating on this claim, Esconis argues that modernity liquidates traditions for the same reason that a firm might liquidate an underperforming factory to improve the allocation and return of capital. This is an intentionally limited definition of tradition, one that purports to measure the usefulness of tradition as akin to a commodity that should be replaced when it becomes inefficient. Esconis also blames conservatism for too readily acquiescing to technological change, using the example of the introduction of cheap agricultural fertilizers and the many unintended consequences its use had for the practice and culture of farming. Esconis claims this demonstrates how extensive the social impact of a single technology can be and how little the conservative defense of tradition offers in response to this sort of change. For good measure, he throws in the charge that conservatives also lost the culture war, not because their ideas were wrong, but because of the, quote, pill and the two-income trap, end quote. None of this is new. In the 1950s, in the conservative mind, Russell Kirk acknowledged, quote, for a century and a half, conservatives have yielded ground in a manner which, except for occasionally successful rearguard actions, must be described as a rout, end quote. Like Esconis, Kirk identified how, throughout the modern world, quote, things are in the saddle, end quote, including, quote, industrialism, centralization, secularism, and the leveling impulse, end quote. And he indicted conservative thinkers for lacking, quote, purposecacity sufficient to meet the conundrums of modern times, end quote. A similar lament emerged in the work of mid-20th century sociologists, such as Robert Nisbet, who noted in the quest for community, quote, surely the outstanding characteristic of contemporary thought on man and society is the preoccupation with personal alienation and cultural disintegration, end quote. Now let's just pause right there and let's understand that in The Conservative Mind by Russell Kirk, which I have a review episode for, if you want to go back and check that out, in The Conservative Mind, Russell Kirk gives the line of dissent of conservative thinking from Edmund Burke down to himself, really. And he gives a fairly diverse cast of characters who, despite their diversity of personality, temperament, context, what particularly they were writing or saying or doing in their time, in contrast to prevailing notions or things which were beginning to take hold of the collective imagination they had one thing in particular that was fairly common throughout, and that was a respect for God, 
a reverence for God with a few rare exceptions, actually closer to our own modern era. Respect for God, reverence for God drove their conservatism. Now here is a big question, which I don't know. We'll find out. Does Christine Rosen address it? Does it go there? Are the Trump conservatives actually so much like the Reagan conservatives were? Are they so much like Burke? And what I don't mean is in their tone, but I mean with regards to God. When Trump can say the kinds of things that he's been saying about abortion and transgenderism and homosexuality, I would say no. And I would say, actually, even when he ran in 2016, he was not a conservative. Trump has never been a conservative per se in the Burkean sense, in the classical sense. He's not a conservative, even if he wants to conserve some things. And this can be the case. Somebody could say, oh, Trump is conserving lots of things. Therefore, he's a conservative. No, hold on. I can be for progress. And that doesn't make me a progressive. Somebody can, they can want to conserve certain things. That doesn't mean that they're conservative, right? What are you wanting to conserve and on what basis? And is this a consistent mindset, a consistent position and orientation? Is this your principle that you conserve what has been handed down and why? What are we conserving and why? That is what decides whether you really are a conservative or you're not a conservative. To say that conservatism has failed might not be actually quite so true. It might be closer to say a whole lot of people have given up on conservatism. They've given up on being a conservative and they don't even know what that means. If they want to conserve anything, they call themselves a conservative and so everybody's a conservative, but nobody's a conservative. Conservatives are just whoever is opposed to the radical left. That's what we've decided. Okay, yeah, but that's not correct. It reminds me of a story I once read about how bad the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation in Switzerland got at one point. Roving bands of men would seek out somebody who wasn't from around there that they didn't recognize in their territory, in their province, in their town, and they would interrogate them. If caught, the Catholics wanted to know whether the person who wasn't from around here was a Catholic or not. Are you a Catholic or are you a Protestant? So also the Protestants, typically more Reformed, would say, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? And there's a funny anecdote, dark humor, about a Jew once being caught and asked in this time, in this circumstance, caught by some men and asked, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? He said, well, I'm a Jew. And they said, okay, well, are you a Catholic Jew or a Protestant Jew? And all that is to say, if we think that it's all just whoever's opposed to the left is a conservative, we're thinking incorrectly about this. So also, everybody who has criticism for what is dubbed conservatism is not necessarily on the left. And unless we can get back to being able to test ideas and discuss and deliberate and make decisions together without everybody lining up into conservative and progressive camps that are fuzzy and that are more about hating each other than really loving what is good and what is true most times, unless we can get back to that, we are headed for civil war. We are. We are headed for revolution. And that's not a hope that I have. That's just what it is. The rhetoric, 
is spiraling up and up. The actions are increasingly restrictive, repressive, hostile. Something has to be done about that. Maybe a true conservative is able to dust off the history books and the works of philosophy, the writings and the musings of true conservatives to say, hey, this is why we were able once upon a time to sit down and have reasonable discussion. And yes, we have better technology now, as is being brought up by Esconis, as Christine Rosen is pointing out. Yes, we have better technology. We all agree. If your principles totally change when your technology changes, those weren't your principles before either. You were just going through the motions. You were just checking boxes. They weren't actually your convictions before, if they're no longer your convictions, when you have a higher capacity to get information or communicate to an audience because of communication technology, information technology. If your principles were such and such before, and now they're not because we have automobiles and jet planes, well, then your principles really weren't what you say they were, what you say they are before we had automobiles and jet planes. But back to Christine Rosen's piece. She writes, while Esconis enjoys citing Karl Marx, his argument is far more indebted to French sociologist Jacques Ellul, whose 1954 book, The Technological Society, examined in detail the erosion of moral and social values wrought by technological change. Another significant influence is Neil Postman, whose Technopoly was subtitled The Surrender of Culture to Technology. There are many, many more, including, it must be said, Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, whose manifesto included a special shout-out attacking conservatives that sounds quite similar to Esconis. Quote, the conservatives are fools, Kaczynski wrote. Quote, apparently it never occurs to them that you can't make rapid, drastic changes in the technology and the economy of a society without causing rapid changes in all other aspects of the society as well, and that such rapid changes inevitably break down traditional values, end quote. In other words, there is a rich, dare I call it, tradition of critical assessment of technology's impact and unintended consequences, both from within and outside the conservative intellectual world, which Esconis surely knows but does not make mention of in his essay, perhaps because in those works, tradition is treated as the complicated and nuanced thing it is, rather than the one-dimensional straw man Esconis needs us to accept so that his obituary for conservatism will make sense. Are we a society without traditions? Should we refer to it, as Esconis does in scare quotes, as tradition, capitalized? No. A tradition of change, Christine Rosen writes. Esconis never offers a proper definition of the role of tradition, but philosopher Roger Scruton's description will do, quote, for the conservative human beings come into this world burdened by obligations and subject to institutions and traditions that contain with them a precious inheritance of wisdom without which the exercise of freedom is as likely to destroy human rights and entitlements as to enhance them. Now, we'll just pause again. That quote by Scruton is on point. Yes. Yes. No one is born in a vacuum. Samuel, for instance, in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 4. Samuel is not born in a vacuum without context. This is something which Paine would not agree with. Thomas Paine believed that every generation, every fresh generation has the right to revolution. Shake the etch-a-sketch, make something new. The conservative would say, well, wait a second. No, no, no. It's not your etch-a-sketch. Don't reinvent the wheel. If this is a good wheel, 
and you've got a better wheel, well then make your case. Build a better wheel, but we're not going to break this wheel so that we all have a sense of urgency to help you to build a new one. That's some people's idea of progress, but that has been tried. And that's what you find when you study history. That's been tried a number of times and it never goes well. It never ends up benefiting the people involved. It typically empowers those who are wiser, who are neighbors, those who are shrewder, who are paying attention, who will come in while you don't have any wheels. They'll come in with chariots and wreck your day. Human beings come into this world burdened by obligations and subject to institutions and traditions that contain with them a precious inheritance of wisdom. Now, to think of it that way is to totally reframe the complaint. The complaint of the likes of Thomas Paine would be that this is repressive, and this is very similar to other Enlightenment thinkers, philosophers, statesmen, agitators, to say that tradition is a burden that it destroys capacity for self-expression. Well, but what about what I want to do? Yeah, okay, what you want to do. Let's talk about that. If what you want to do, as Scruton points out, is exercise freedom without the inheritance of wisdom, that is more likely, or at least as likely, to destroy your capacity and the capacity of other people to do what is good and to enjoy life as it is to enhance human rights. When everybody does what's right in their own eyes, without restraint, without wisdom, what you get is destruction. What you get is strife and you get a lack of cohesion. So then when an enemy, for instance, says, we want to fight you guys, nobody knows how to work together. Nobody knows how to listen to each other. Nobody knows how to either wield authority or be under authority because, hey, Nobody tells me what to do. Yeah, but <laughs> we're in a life or death struggle with this enemy army that has come out to pillage our towns and our cities and steal all of our stuff and kill us. And, <laughs> you know, like you, you kind of need to know how to be under authority and you need to know who is good to have entrusted with authority. And that's something you don't get when you have unfettered, unrestrained, uncontrolled, ungoverned liberty. But then a tradition of things being orderly allows for the same rules to be common to all, which is kind of like having a common language. Just imagine with me, if you will, that China and the US got into World War III tomorrow, and we're going to have a fight. We're going to have a conventional fight mixed in with a whole lot of asymmetrical war. That's probable, right? It's not going to be all hackers in China shutting down our power plants and stuff like that. It's going to be also men with guns shooting at other men with guns. It's going to be people launching missiles and fighters strafing and tanks and all the rest, like all the things. These militaries are not built up and maintained for no reason. They're built up because wars do happen. But let's suppose that China attacks and... We all speak different languages. Let's suppose you're in a unit and this guy speaks Spanish and that guy speaks Arabic and you speak English and this other guy over here speaks French and this other guy over here speaks Italian and you're all speaking different languages and nobody can understand what anybody else is saying. If you don't have a common language, you're not able to coordinate. You're not able to say, hey, I need help over here. You're not able to say, hey, listen, they're coming over the hill. Get ready. 
You're not able to say, everybody fall back or everybody advance. Hurry, quick, pass me this thing that I need. Also in the day-to-day, in order for an economy to operate, in order for people to do productive work and grow food and take it to market and buy and sell and trade at the market in such a way as you will be able to go to the grocery store and buy that food off the shelf, there has to be some ability to communicate back and forth. Tradition works kind of like that, but it's a way of communicating that transcends generations. It's not just those who are alive right now who are communicating. It's also those who have come before. It's also my grandparents who have all passed on. It's my intellectual ancestors who wrote books that have been influential. For that matter, it's even just reading this article. How do I know Christine Rosen? Because we have a tradition of writing essays and articles that are persuasive, and you want to conserve that. And in some sense, Esconus is participating in the tradition of making a reasoned argument, even if it's a bad argument, even if it's bad reasons for believing that conservatism is dead. But then, like I was saying, it's not as though everybody who conserves is a conservative. Rather, you need conservatives saying, hey, I'm going to argue in defense of us not jettisoning this thing that's part of our common language. It's part of our cohesion as a people. This is important. You need people saying, this is important. Don't throw that away. No, no, no. Don't break that. No, no, no. Don't tear that down. No, no, no. Don't burn that. You need people saying that because you're always going to have people who will say the opposite thing. Hey, this is getting in the way. Let's just knock it down. Let's bulldoze it. Let's light it up. Let's smash it. You have to have conservatives who are going to say, wait, 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 wait a second. Not so fast. Back to Christine Rosen's piece, though. She writes, note that Scruton, like most conservative writers, more often speaks of traditions, plural, not tradition, capitalized, singular. That is because many forms of tradition flourish in different communities, in different times and places, and of course, not all of them, footbinding, sati, are worth bequeathing to future generations. For conservatives, traditions are not static things that can and must change to fit new circumstances, but conservatives also believe that such change should come slowly, thoughtfully, and with humility, weighing the benefits and drawbacks. As Kirk observed, quote, conservatives respect the wisdom of their ancestors. They are dubious of wholesale alteration. They think society is a spiritual reality possessing an eternal life, but a delicate constitution. It cannot be scrapped and recast as if it were a machine, end quote. Conservatives believe that traditions serve as moderating influences on the deeply human desire for change, not a means of suffocating that desire. As Edmund Burke wrote in a 1792 letter, quote, we must all obey the great law of change. It is the most powerful law of nature and the means perhaps of its conservation. All we can do and that human wisdom can do is to provide that the change shall proceed by insensible degrees. This has all the benefits which may be in change without any of the inconveniences of mutation. Or as Kirk put it, quote, conservatism is never more admirable than when it accepts changes that it disapproves with good grace for the sake of general conciliation, end quote. Now let's just pause right there, okay? So this right here, this is so pivotal. This right here is the sticking point. This is the crux of the matter. This is the whole debate between the more Trumpian Republicans and 
the more establishment Republicans, not all of whom are corrupt, taking bribes on the side, taking kickbacks, some who have done well because their ideas are good ideas, and that's what it is, and they're conservative, and they have the longer view, and they're more well-read on the one hand. And on the other hand, those who are primarily frustrated with the sellouts, who are corrupt, they're moderate to the point that they really play for the other team. This quote from Kirk and the one preceding it from Burke, this is exactly the right word. This is le mot juste, as the French would say, just the right word. Conservatism is never more admirable than when it accepts changes that it disapproves with good grace for the sake of general conciliation. And here's where I say a proper notion of individualism will allow you to take in stride when it is appropriate and when it's inescapable, the folly of other people. Or maybe you disagree, maybe you're missing something, right? That's another thing that comes with the humility of a conservative when you're looking back on previous generations and you're willing to admit that they knew things I don't know. They understood things that I don't understand. They figured some things out that I haven't figured out. If I'm not sure that I'm sure that I'm sure that I have a better idea, or if it's not feasible for me to implement a better idea, I'll defer to them because it seems as though they knew what they were talking about, or or at least we know what we're getting, right? At least we know what we're getting if we go with their wisdom that's been passed down to us, which we've inherited. And that's a great way to put it. Instead of we're all stifled and smothered and suffocated by traditions, these are an inheritance for us at best when thought of rightly. But then as Kirk says, if you accept changes that you disapprove of with good grace for the sake of a general conciliation, you are actually winning even just your own personal victory. I'll give you an analogy to illustrate this. Suppose I'm in my home office working. I'm doing some programming and I hear in the next room over or I hear downstairs in the living room, my sons Enoch and John arguing back and forth about what they're going to watch on TV. Enoch gets to the remote first. He's older. He's bigger. He wants to watch fill in the blank. John It's just a little bit slower to get there, and he is letting us all know he is not happy. He is upset. No, he doesn't want to watch that. He wants to watch something else, right? He's upset. He doesn't like the choice that Enoch wants to make of what to watch, and he is upset. So I pull him aside, and I say, hey, listen, Enoch got to it first, and let's let him watch what he wants to watch first, and then you can watch what you want to watch. How about that? If John's response to that is okay. And if I'm not going to change my mind on this, because I don't want to reward throwing a fit, I don't want that to become normative. That's how we decide who gets what they want. Whoever throws the biggest fit, they're the ones who get what they want. If I am dead set against that, which I am, and we should be, and if John knows, hey, you know, this isn't going to change the outcome. All it's going to do is get me really upset. It's going to get Enoch really upset. Dad's not going to be happy that now he's not working. He's not working on what he was working on to provide for our family. If John realizes all of that, one, he's more likely to find something else to do sooner that will be enjoyable in the meantime. For two, if it turns out that the thing Enoch's wanting to watch is actually not so good. Oh, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. What what are you watching? Oh yeah, let's not watch that. That's not That's not such a good show. 
Paw Patrol now has a non-binary character. We're not going to watch that. Nope. Sorry. Okay, John, what did you want to watch? Is more likely, that is more likely to be what it is and how it works out. And it will work out in John's favor. And also too, it's the right thing to do. From a character standpoint, from a respect for his father standpoint, from a kindness and graciousness towards his brother standpoint, always round, that's going to have a better result. I think what's been happening in the case of a lot of these Trumpians, the Trump Republicans who are the rank and file, diehard, MAGA, forever, is they've been seeing the radical left pitching a fit, throwing tantrums, getting what they want for so long. And a lot of politicians, yes, even Republicans, even so-called conservatives, just giving the radical left what they want so often when all it is is a tantrum and there's actually no rule of law that predicates and substantiates what's being demanded and what's being done. When actually what's being done is a departure from tradition. And now the Trumpians are frustrated. They're like, wait a second, you've just given everything away. Oh, how you get what you want is throwing a fit, being ugly, being mean. Okay, I can do that too. Only when they do, then the script flips to why are you not respecting tradition? This is an assault on our democracy. This is not how things are done. Okay, yes, but also, hold on a second. Let's replay the tape. Let's remember how we got to here. Let's remember how we got to now. How would it be? Let me take the scenario I just explained and let me adapt it a little bit. How would it be if I hear this kerfuffle, I'm up in my office working, I come down to the living room, I'm going to try and mediate this dispute. John's all upset. Enoch's got the remote. He's going to watch what he wants to watch on the TV. And John starts throwing a fit. How is it going to be if he's throwing a fit and he's not taking no for an answer? Hey, no, I don't want to wait till Enoch has watched what he wants to watch. And then it clicks, right? Something registers in my brain. You know what? The last couple of times that the roles were reversed, Enoch threw a fit and we just gave him what he wanted. What then, right? If I'm humble, if I actually, as a father, as the person mediating the dispute there, if I actually want what's best and I want a resolution of the conflict, I'm going to put a stop across the board to caving into tantrums for everybody. And I'm, if I'm wanting reconciliation and if I'm wanting my son, John, not to be confused and frustrated with me for showing partiality and changing up the rules, depending on which of my sons we're dealing with here, if I want that for him and if I want that for my household, if I want that for my sons, I'm going to say, hey, listen, you know what? I'm sorry. I have been giving into these fits and we can't, right? This is how it's got to be from now on. We can't be giving into fits. No more fits. Throwing fits is not how we're going to decide who gets what they want. If somebody would do that in the case of the American political scene, it would go a long, long ways to lowering the temperature in the room. If somebody would do that in a position to actually do it across the board, that would go a long ways. Will somebody do that? Will somebody conserve the tradition of equal weights and measures, equal protection of the laws, equal application of the laws? And will it be believable? Will it stick? Will they say it? And will it actually be so? That person will go far and will do a great deal of good and will actually be conserving something. That's the kind of conservatism we need, not conserving the angry, tantrum-throwing politics of 
recent decades. We need to regain the ability to make decisions together and to afford due process to those who are accused of committing crimes or who have we empowered. We've empowered whoever is going to throw the tantrums. We've empowered whoever is going to level an accusation. Going back to Christine Rosen's article here, skipping on down, she gets to a section titled Prudence and the Pill. She says, we should not limit ourselves merely to personal technologies and the internet. What of the conservative response to technologies of reproduction, cloning, and human enhancement? In the realm of bioethics, the late Edmund Pellegrino and Leon Cass, among others, offered a compelling example of how to invite public debate about deeply challenging moral questions at the beginning and ends of life with regard to cloning, genetic manipulation of human embryos, and stem cell research, for example. The efforts of such conservative thinkers helped forestall the abuse of many technological powers by constantly insisting we ask the question, just because we can do something, should we? Or to return to Ascona's example of agriculture and the communities that develop around small-scale as opposed to industrial farming, groups like Front Porch Republic champion the integrity of place-scale and face-to-face community in a world where technology promises the elimination of all three. Esconis' name checks Roger Scruton in his essay, but he fails to note that when he was alive, Scruton was himself the owner of a farm in Wiltshire and famously championed the small-scale agriculture Esconis claims conservatism was helpless to save. A hundred years ago, Scruton told Dominic Green in an interview on his farm in 2017, people in this part of the world would eat turnips and carrots to get through the winter. Now they have avocado pears and rocket salad. Scruton understood what globalization had wrought, and unlike the monolithic portrait of conservatives that Asconis paints, Scruton was an outspoken critic of libertarian free marketers who refused to reckon with the costs of globalization to communities such as his. Scruton also understood that nurturing His particular farm and community meant having to adapt to certain technological realities. You can't globalize the old rural economy, Scruton said. By its very nature, it's a local thing. And that's what we're trying to support with this little festival, referring to a local apple festival he and his family created to help support local farms, including their own. The virtues of this local orientation would have been familiar to Edmund Burke, as would Scruton's willingness to undertake reforms to keep certain traditions, such as a successful family farm, alive. Now, another moment to pause, and let's talk about the kinds of conversations I have around the table with my sons and my daughter and my wife. In fact, a conversation I just had with them, where I was pointing out that, hey, you know what? This chore is not done. We're behind in our math. This has not been attended to. Someone forgot this, even though it was a known thing and assigned. You were told one of my children, you were told to change out of your pajamas and put on clothes for the day. What has changed since these instructions were given to you? What has changed since I told you to do these things, these good things that are beneficial to you and also beneficial to everyone else in this family? What changed is that when I said you should do this thing, your plans didn't change. When I said you should do this thing, your attitude didn't change. So we have a house filled with computers and we have a TV and we have Kindles and we're looking to get an iPad because there are certain things you can get on the iPad that you can't necessarily get, certain software offerings, certain applications that are available on the iPad that you're not going to get on a PC, for instance, 
We have screens galore. We have technology galore. We have high-speed internet. We have fiber, actually. The trouble is if we don't also have self-control and if we don't also have discipline, if we don't also prioritize being kind to one another, loving one another, loving God, then these devices, these technologies sing a siren song. And the song that they sing is something like the song of globalization. Really, truly, actually, I think you could say that the World Wide Web is the victory of globalization because now I can be on the opposite side of the planet for all intents and purposes, talking to somebody I don't know and I will never know, telling them something that they wouldn't hear in their own neighborhood probably, and I can hear from them something I wouldn't hear in my neighborhood. I can get news from the opposite side of the planet. I can see pictures and I can watch video from anywhere in the world or from out in space even, from the depths of the ocean as far down as we can go to as far out into space as we can travel or send satellites. And the temptation is when dear old dad in Greeley, Colorado says to Josiah, Eli, Solomon, Daniel, Evelyn, Enoch, John, or Andrew, I'd like you to go put on some clothes for the day. I'd like you to wipe up the spill. I'd like you to clear the table. I'd like you to sweep the floor. I'd like you to get on your math. There are limitless alternatives for where they can spend their attention and what they can get distracted by. And if somebody wants to characterize conservatives as saying, we're opposed to technology, we're opposed to progress, we're opposed to having access to the latest, greatest high-resolution photos of the surface of Mars or the bottom of the ocean or the Amazon rainforest, think again. And yet, that's just it. Some conservatives who are embracing some of these technologies have to think more deeply about how these technologies came to be possible in the first place. It's not for no reason that young people studied and applied themselves and worked and cooperated and learned from others and they acquired the resources. Those resources were transported. The energy was made available. The free time, the leisure time was made available to study these things and develop them and enhance them to develop these hardware and software capabilities whereby these images are transmitted to us in the first place. Not without someone who knew passing on a tradition or traditions of learning in a particular way, working in a particular way, communicating in a particular way, living in a particular way. But for that, none of these things that we're distracted by, so easily distracted by, would be available to distract us. And yet, here's the reality. If we have the ability to be everywhere and anywhere, but that means that we're never here, we're never where we're at, we're never local, then sooner or later, when everybody's doing that all over the world, everything falls apart. Everyone everywhere is trying to escape to somewhere else, and sooner or later, there's nowhere else to escape to except when the individual, the family, the local community in some place says, we're going to put up some boundaries. We're going to prioritize. We're going to say this is worth conserving. This is worth maintaining. This is worth building and keeping and thanking God for. You can't globalize the old rural economy. The, the old rural economy <laughs> it was local. And so if you live in a city, 
if you live in the hustle bustle of some very densely populated place, you might think, well, yeah, but I don't have any interface with the old rural economy. And maybe that's part of what conservatives should be promoting is actually, hey, let's spread out. Now we have technologies that allow us to work remote and coordinate with other people. Let's really push for being able to work remote in some of these far-flung places where you can have a family farm and grow your own food. Maybe it's not all of the food you eat, but maybe it's supplemental. And maybe that's healthier. Maybe that's better for your soul and your mind and your heart. And maybe that helps you to understand and appreciate the value of restraint, self-control, not everything being centralized in somebody else's hands, somebody else making all the decisions because they're the expert. Well, they're more and more the expert, the less and less everybody else knows. But then you can solve that problem or you can mitigate that problem by looking for who wants you to know more instead of just telling you what to do, who's trying to grow your capacity to do what you should do, to live life that is abundant, joyful. If we wanted to talk about sustainability in a more traditional sense, that would be wise. And if we did, we could say sustainability in a more traditional sense would mean encourage young people to get married. And then if they say, hey, there are all these impediments, it's not realistic. You say, okay, let's take a look at some of those impediments and figure out how do we deal with the core fundamentals instead of creating dependence. Let's figure out what it takes to help you to get independent because that's the only time That's the only way, that's the only circumstance in which you will be free. And once you're independent, then you can be dependable. And then when you're dependable, you can take a wife and you can get married and you can have some kids and they can depend on you because you're dependable. You're even more dependable together as a husband and a wife, as mother and father, than you would be apart separately. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's a great thing to conserve. That's a thing we should be conserving. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then when we get into the particulars, okay, maybe some of these technologies in 10 years' time, you're going to find have given way to other technologies. But what technologies we develop and refine will be entirely dependent on what our felt needs are. So it's time for us to consider what felt needs are best served by developing and implementing technologies at a local level. Not all the technology being developed in some lab that's owned by some major corporation run by some chain of very well-funded universities backed by transnational nonprofit organizations. Skipping on down, though, in Christine Rosen's piece here at Acton Institute. Filed under will to power versus curb your enthusiasm, she writes. Ultimately, Axona's Frustration with conservatism is about power, not capital T tradition. Quote, before we recover a human way of thinking, we must first need to address a more practical question first posed by Nietzsche. Who deserves to be the masters of the earth? Corporations, the Chinese Communist Party, the National Institute of Health, the Department of Defense, or human beings living according to their natures? End quote. He argues that we don't need the kind words and tax credits of old-fashioned conservatism, but a serious program of technological development. Conservatism would answer Nietzsche's and Axona's question quite simply. None of the above. Indeed, for conservatives, the traditions Axonus 
sees as useless are precisely what help curb and civilize mankind and thus allow a level of self-governance that doesn't require a communist party to impose its will and that can hold the leaders of its own institutions accountable. History has shown that encouraging mankind to live, quote, according to their natures, end quote, tends to end in war, violence, scarcity, and general brutality with a strong ruling the weak. Conservatives, given their understanding of human nature, would warn against such encouragement too. As for Exonus, whom would he entrust with designing the serious program he desires? Who decides who enforces the rules of this program and who benefits? Quote, those who look to build a human future have been freed from a rearguard defensive tradition to take up the path of the gorilla, the upstart, the nomad, he writes. His choice of role models is instructive, both for what they tell us of his understanding of conservatism and tradition and what they pretend for a future devoid of either. Consider the gorilla. Among the more famous of history's gorilla fighters are men like Mao, Fidel Castro, Josip Broz Tito, and Che Guevara, the last of whom literally wrote the book on the practice. What kinds of serious programs did they build once they seized power? In the case of Mao and Castro, a punishing and deadly authoritarianism built on a bed of empty utopian promises and the bones of their citizens. For Tito, purges, fraudulent elections, show trials, and eventually ethnic cleansing, and the collapse of Yugoslavia. Likewise, the upstart, Asconus praises, is a type more skilled at destruction than building. Upstarts move fast and break things, as Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg so memorably put it. Although something new, shiny, and even useful might come from the upstart, he rarely reckons with the wreckage he leaves behind. As for the nomad, always a minority lifestyle, he embodies impermanence, effectively living as a social parasite on the order created by others, never experiencing either the risks or rewards of settling down roots in one place. Traditions are larger than any one individual who might embody their characteristics. Yet Asconus's preferred leaders of the next age are examples of radical individualism, an individualism whose fruits tend to be either destruction, authoritarianism, or both. Now, here we'll just pause a moment and consider. There are angry people who hate what the left is doing and who don't know why they hate it. They don't like the fruits, but they don't understand that the seed that was planted has a lot in common with some of what they're doing themselves. So you go backwards in the number line a little bit, and will we get a better outcome, or will we just back up and take another running start at it and end up in the same place at the end? Don't overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. To Rosen's point, man acting according to his nature pre-fall would have been doing exactly what he should have been doing. Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, eating fruit, roaming around the garden, tending it, naming animals, being naked, walking with God in the cool of the mist. That sounds grand. The trouble is, now we inherit a sinful nature, and the evidence for this is not just biblical, it's also self-evidently written in all of the history books, all of our current events reporting. Man, when he relates to his fellow man, according to his nature, as often as not, destroys rather than builds up. Man, with a sinful nature, does what is evil. And the role of civil government, according to Paul, is to reward those who do what is good, not those who do what is evil. Now that said, it must be possible to know what good we ought to do and to do it. It must be possible by God's grace. And this, I would say, is a factor of common grace, but also special grace. 
By God's common grace, we can know what is good and evil. By God's special grace, we have his revealed word. And we have, for those who believe in Christ, we have the capacity to, by God's great power, do what is good. But even when we come to the question of knowing what is good, doing what is good, knowing what is evil, restraining evil in the world, you don't have conservatism, friends, without God having given us a thing to conserve. Ultimately, if you follow this line of thought back in cherishing and being a good steward of what you've inherited in the way of traditions, you have to recognize that there is a tradition in the West, there is a tradition in the U.S. of being a good steward of, cherishing, valuing, embracing, loving, acting according to the tradition of Christian faith, informing what is good, what is evil, all of that predicated on God's word. And that's not to say that you can't also look to other sources. And that's something that centuries of Christian thought and life, theory and practice have demonstrated. You can look at what the Greeks did. You can look at what the Romans did. You can read Augustine, for instance, and see his being keenly aware of what had been good that we should like to recognize and affirm as virtuous, not because the Romans were self-righteous, they were righteous in and of themselves by their Romanness, but because there is such a thing as virtue. There is such a thing as righteousness, and insofar as generations of Romans acted according to virtue and they acted according to honor, it was worth reminding the contemporaries of Augustine that they lost the plot when they gave up on virtue. They gave up on doing what was right, rewarding those who do what is right, punishing evil, thanking and honoring those who punish what is evil. We're following a lot of the same mistakes that the Romans did in giving up on virtue and actually turning virtue into something of a punchline regarding with hostility those who would punish what is evil. All predicated on claiming that our ancestors were evil. The American experiment was itself evil. Why was the American experiment evil? Well, because these guys owned slaves, or they didn't do enough to put a stop to slavery. The kind of thinking that, I'm sorry to say, is riling up quite a lot of the anger and resentment on the part of the Trump folks, and I don't mean Trump's administration, I don't mean Trump himself, but I mean a lot of the people who are most energetically supporting this Make America Great Again vision that Trump laid out and was acting on, a lot of what's animating them in their way of relating to more traditional conservatives and those who are not quite so enthusiastic about Trump always, they do have some critical things to say, even if on the whole they're appreciative. A lot of what's finding expression among those who are impatient, they've just totally given up on conservatives working together, Americans in general working together, a lot of what's coming through is actually something like on the left, what we see in the tearing down of statues. Only we're going to tear down people in the present, anybody who would not support the tactics and the rhetoric of Trump's most energetic spokespeople, his most energetic activists. 
And that's just not a good way to be a conservative. That's not going to conserve things moving forward. It's kind of like the other side of the coin for what the left has been doing. And there are reasons, right? It makes sense. It's understandable. Just like when one child sees another child always getting what they want, being rewarded for tantrums, and they at a certain point realize, hey, you know what? I've been behaving really well and I'm not being rewarded for it. I will also throw a tantrum. And that's not the right way. That's not going to do it. That's not going to get us where we want to go, put simply. Skipping on down, I'm going to get to the last section here of Christine Rosen's article, her essay for Acton. The last segment is titled, Respect Your Dead. Christine Rosen writes, Revolutionaries always predict a more high-minded future for their schemes. Conservatives, unenviable but crucial task is to think through the logical conclusions of such schemes, explore their likely unintended consequences, and always contrast the utopian vision with the realities of human behavior and history. Unlike the gorilla or the upstart or the nomad, conservatives understand that society is not for the enjoyment of any one individual. Instead, it is, as Burke famously argued in Reflections on the Revolution in France, a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. Asconus and others are correct to point to how our use of technology has strained that partnership in significant ways. The pandemic experience revealed how fragile is the bond of trust between citizens and our institutions, how little accountability there is during times of crisis from those who are deciding how people should live and how easily fear can lead even the well-intentioned down illiberal paths. But conservatism counsels thoughtful adaptation, preserving what is most important about institutions, noting also what might change, but not promoting wholesale revolution. Askinus, eagerness to shrug off the mantle of conservatism, to dive headlong into building new ways of being in the world that conform to current technological capabilities also fails to reckon with another serious blind spot. How will this new world, the one better adapted to technology than its conservative forebears, create trustworthy institutions from whole cloth? As Scruton reminds us, quote, good things are easily destroyed but not easily created, end quote. And this, we'll just pause for a moment before I read the very last paragraph. This right here is so important. It is so important to know this. Good things are easily destroyed but not easily created. Consider also future generations. And think about this. Think about Edmund Burke as a member of parliament, the same guy who wrote a lengthy rebuke of the French Revolution, and rightly so, supported the American War for Independence because he recognized that the principles were distinct from those of a revolution. The principles were actually very conservative. The principles were this, to enjoy the equal application and protection of the laws, to participate by way of representatives in one's own government, to be able to debate in public matters of pressing local interest and personal interest as pertained to the policy of the government, how the government's policies would relate to one's own ability to provide for and protect their family, run a profitable business, mind their own affairs. Burke recognized that the colonists 
who fought the war for independence, breaking away from King George and Great Britain, wanted their rights as Englishmen, which constitutionally they had a right to expect. And yet the lawless one was not the man who picked up arms to fight in the American Revolution, as it's too often called, unfortunately. I think Burke would be very dismayed by that. The lawless one was not the one who signed the Declaration of Independence or met at the Continental Congress to discuss and deliberate how will we affect our independence. The lawless one was the one who said, these colonists are a long ways off and dependent, and therefore we will lord it over them, and we will abuse them, we will oppress them, we will deprive them of their rights, we will insult them, and we will injure them with no end in sight. The lawless one was King George. Edmund Burke recognized that. Insofar as, and here's the kicker, good things are easily destroyed but not easily created, which is to say that the founding fathers of the United States of America recognized their rights as Englishmen were easily destroyed by a tyrannical, out-of-control, unresponsive, overbearing, foreign potentate, foreign monarch. And they recognized that at a certain point, They were their own country. They were their own distinct people with their own distinct interests and issues, and they weren't being heard. And so it was something like a divorce from an abusive spouse. It was something like emancipation. And the people who say, oh, these were not good men. They were bad, corrupt men, and we should tear down everything they built up. They need to know good things are easily destroyed. And we're seeing that every day. They're not easily created. Understand that part of the reason why you make slow incremental change with due deliberation as a conservative, the reason why you take the long view is because even your own best efforts can lead to the good things being destroyed. In the name of liberty, you completely abolish all liberty. In the name of safety, you destroy people's capacity to protect themselves. In the name of access to information, you censor. If you're hasty, if you're pretentious and puffed up and you think you have all the answers and those who went before knew nothing, they're all dead. Who cares? No, no. This is another way in which Christianity leads intuitively to conservatism. When we realize that on the judgment day, we are all expecting all those who went before us All those who come after us will be standing there beside us. Everyone will be raised, either to life eternal or to eternal judgment. If we spend eternity with others who did the right thing and they believed in Jesus and they built good things, and yet we have to explain to them how we destroyed the things that they worked so hard for, they bled and died for, those are conversations that we don't want to go into willy-nilly. And if we don't have to have those conversations about how we destroyed what they bled and died for that was good, we just didn't appreciate the goodness of it because we couldn't be reasoned with ourselves, then we are the tyrants, actually. We're the problem. We're not the solution. Good things are not easily created, but they can be stewarded. In the last paragraph, Christine Rosen writes, The conservative temperament, with its respect for history and its homage, to the democracy of the dead, as G.K. Chesterton called it, 
does not view progress as predictable and linear, nor every new thing as a sign of progress, and it recognizes that change cannot happen only from the top down, no matter how well-intentioned the elite in charge believe themselves to be. Out of humility rather than pessimism, it reminds us that sometimes the proposed cure ends up being worse than the disease in our technology-saturated society, convinced we can achieve lives of frictionless ease in metaverses of our own making, conservatism reminds us to come back down to earth and to the reality of our limitations and our wonderfully contradictory, creative, messy, and extraordinary humanity. And I'll just go a step farther. That is the end of her essay here at the Acton Institute, acton.org. And I did skip over significant portions, but I'll just go a step farther and say that conservatism, in embracing humility, in encouraging others to be humble and to honor parents and to honor those who have gone before us, who built good things, who wrote true things, conservatism is much more likely to be blessed by God than is progressivism. If you want progress, great. So do I. Progress is not just any and all change that pops into your head as it pops into your head, particularly when your idea of progress involves hijacking all of my capacity to work and earn and save and invest and be free and provide and protect for my own. And that's true, not just of the radical left. If the people who are running on the Republican side of things or campaigning or arguing, clamoring for this or that or some other thing, if they are indistinguishable in their tactics from those they say they oppose, we will, you and I as individuals, have to conserve at least the memory of how do you do these things appropriately? What is virtue? What is good that we would reward it? What is evil that we would resist it or restrain it as a part of common grace, or we would empower others. We would affirm others who do restrain evil. We will have to conserve even just the memory of that. And this is why we homeschool, my wife and I. See also my book published December 31st, 2020. This is why we read books. And this is why we're doing this business with the Ecclesia Forum, which our next session coming up will be October 8th for talking about local politics and the ballot and should you ever vote third party because you can't in good conscience vote for the Republican or the Democrat candidate. Should you ever vote third party or is that a throwaway? We'll be discussing that. This is why we'll be discussing that. The death of conservatism is greatly exaggerated. Very thought-provoking piece over at acton.org. Check it out. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go read the full thing at your leisure, but I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.